Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Our passage this morning for the sermon is James chapter 2, picking up at verse 18. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. James chapter 2, verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that... It uh, is profitable for training, correction, for, for reproof, that we may grow in righteousness, that we may be adequate and equipped for every good work. And so, Father, we pray that you would, again, feed us and challenge us, Lord, and that your word would go out as it always does and accomplish its purposes. Make us humble in receiving it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I'm just plopping down in the middle of the book of James, but the book of James has a number of themes, and really one overarching theme, I would say, in the book of James, and that's this, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. You can't just have an intellectual faith that does not produce walking with the Lord and, and fruit. Um, that just does not make sense. So faith without works is dead. Faith by itself is not really faith. Faith without living by faith is not faith. In fact, it's, it's worse than worthless. So faith works. That's another way to put it positively. Faith works. Faith in God leads to obedience. Faith in God leads to works of love. In a nutshell, we could say it this way. If a man has saving faith, if a man has saving faith, the Holy Spirit resides in him, and the old man has become a new man. There's been change. There's been an overhaul, right? Uh, but it's a radical change. There's, and, and what comes with that radical change above anything else is that there's a new desire to be holy. Whereas before, the idea of holiness had no place in your life. After you come to faith, the desire for holiness is overwhelming. Everything that man does springs from faith. Faith causes everything he does to have God at its core. God is not peripheral. If you have faith, God is at the center of your life. Now the classical theological definition of faith is that it's made up of three parts. And those three parts, all of, all of which must be present for saving faith, those three parts all must be present. 
And those three parts are knowledge, assent, and trust. Or knowledge, conviction, and trust. If it becomes evident that the person only has the first two elements of faith, uh, we should suspect that their faith is not really faith. It's not the faith that saves. So again, those three elements. Knowledge. One must have information in the mind about God. You've got to know something about God. It's the information. It's just nuggets of information. Assent. One must believe that that information you're receiving about God is true. Right? You believe it's right. And then trust. One must commit oneself to the God of those truths, resting in that God, resting one's salvation in the God. Uh, or to put it differently, knowledge. God is and we may know him. Assent. God is right and his word is truth and that word diagnoses my problem of sin, which God hates. And then trust, God is my Lord and my God. Right? And, and, I, and I love him. In faith, we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. Again, Murray, um, John Murray, in a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says this, Faith is a whole, let me start that again, faith is a whole-souled movement of commitment to Christ for salvation from sin and its consequences. A whole-souled movement. And again, to put it another way, knowledge. So we got knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge is this. We must know who Christ is, what he has done, and what he is able to do. Otherwise, faith would be blind conjecture at the best and foolish mockery at the worst. There must be apprehension of the truth respecting Christ. That's John Murray again. All these are John Murray's definitions. Ascent, he says, we must not only know the truth respecting Christ, but we must also believe it to be true. Christ fits in perfectly to the totality of our situation which is sin and misery and guilt and ill desert. And then trust. Murray says, faith, faith is knowledge passing into assent, and it is assent passing into confidence or trust. Faith, um, faith is... It is a receiving and resting upon Jesus. Faith, after all, is not belief of proposition of truth respecting the Savior. However essential that ingredient of faith and belief is, faith is trusting in a person. The person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the lost. It is entrustment of ourselves to him. It's not simply believing him. It is believing in him and on him. And so, this passage deals with this idea of faith. I mean, in faith, it's very seldom you come across anybody who denies that they have some sort of faith, is it? Now, they may have faith in government, which is a foolish, foolish faith. They may have faith in the, the strength of their own body to accomplish many things, 
And that, too, is a fleeting sort of thing. Comes and goes with the days. They may have a faith in God that's just, um, just facts about God, but they haven't yet yielded their heart and their soul to God. Remember this example of the Apostle Thomas. There he is. He's become down through history known as Doubting Thomas. He had been with Jesus, learning at Jesus' feet, and yet after Jesus' death, it seems like he doesn't have faith. Right? He certainly had the first two of those three parts of faith. He had a knowledge of Jesus. He was taught by Jesus for three years. He traveled around with Jesus. He knew a lot of things about Jesus. And um, he, he ate meals with them. He saw Jesus' miracles. He heard his sermons um, face-to-face, countless other lessons from his mouth that we don't even have recorded in the Gospels Thomas had. Thomas also had the second of those three parts of faith. He assented to Jesus' teaching. When Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, Thomas exclaimed, Let us also go so that we may die with him. Right? He, it seemed, had accepted much of what Jesus said to the point where he was willing to die with Jesus. Right? One does not go this far with someone unless he has, in a sense, bought into what he's saying, um, what he is teaching. And so Thomas had done that. But then this scene after Jesus appeared to the disciples after his death in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 24, it says this, But Thomas... One of the twelve, one of the twelve apostles, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my fingers into the place in the nails and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, right, Jesus knew what had happened before. And he turns to Thomas, and he says, Reach here with your finger, and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then Thomas clearly moves into stage three, doesn't he? He says, he answers and says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Right? Knowledge is sent and now trust. My Lord and my God. We see that third part of the three parts of faith. Thomas trusts in Jesus. We see Thomas trusting in the Lord and his faith, that gift of God is alive. And now Jesus is not simply God. He's not simply a speaker of truth, but he is Thomas's Lord and Thomas's God. Knowledge is sent and now trust. Faith is alive in Thomas. And now clearly there is a sort of belief. There is a sort of belief that is very common, but it does not end in trust. It doesn't end in my Lord and my God. Right? This is the faith that James mentions in our passage. It's the faith of demons. And really, as I see it, it involves only the first two elements of faith. Knowledge and assent, but never, ever trust. Right? So so what do the demons know? What do these demons know? What sort of knowledge do they have? Well, clearly the demons know that Jesus was the Son of God. 
And they know this when the people of Israel are still clueless about who Jesus is. They know when the people don't know. They have prior knowledge of Jesus. In Mark one thirty four, we read this, And he, Jesus, healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In Luke chapter 4, we read this, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. I mean, he keeps going on defining who Jesus is. He knows a lot. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Mark 3, 9 through 12, we read this, And he told his disciples, Jesus told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so they would not crowd him. And he had healed many, with the result that all who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God! And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. They have a deep knowledge of who Jesus is, even the demons. Demons have a knowledge of God that even the people of the time did not have about Jesus. They knew who he was. They knew Jesus was the Holy One of God. They knew that he was the very Son of God. So the demons have a depth of knowledge about Jesus that's really quite extraordinary. Remember that the demons are recognizing him, but his people... His own people, the Israelites, are not. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But those demons, they knew exactly who he was. So though the people do not know who he and therefore do not, do not know who he is and therefore do not receive him, the demons do know who he is, professing that he is the very Son of God. Now the question is, do the demons have the second part of faith? Do they assent to that teaching? Do they believe that what they're saying and what they've learned and what the scriptures say about Jesus is true? Do they know him and beyond that, do they acknowledge what, that what he says is true? Well, they certainly obey the voice of his power. Fleeing from people as Jesus heals them, they don't just identify Jesus as the Son of God, but they acknowledge that he has real power. Remember the demon who asked, have you come to destroy us? Right, And the few verses we are looking at in James make the same point. Notice what our passage says. It says, you believe that God is one. Okay, that is knowledge about God, believing certain things to be true about God. He is there and he is one. Next it says, you do well, the demons also believe. Okay, the demons have some knowledge of God, but does it stop there? James sort of grinds this point in a bit. The demons also believe and shudder. They don't just believe coldly, like for an ACT test on demons. Right? They shudder at the knowledge they have of Jesus. There's a fear the demons have, an assent to the power of God. 
The demons know they can do nothing to overcome the power of God. They may only do what God allows them to do. And so in that sense, they assent to God's power. At this point, see, we're moving deeper along the road to real faith. There are many who, like the demons, may acknowledge that there's a God. Look upon the sunset, look upon the mountains, look upon the beauty of a leaf, and know that there's a God. But really, there are very few men and women whose faith reaches to the point that the demons have. They, they, the ones who acknowledge there's a God and see, see the beauty of the earth, many of them do not shudder. They do not assent to God's truth. Rather, they believe God exists simply to serve them, to do their bidding, to respond to their desires, to bend his law to their own sense of what is fair and good. And their faith doesn't even make it to the level of the demons. At least the demons shudder. They're scared of the power of God. Not so a man who only acknowledges there's a God. This is the kind of faith of the man or woman who says, my God would never send anybody to hell. My God would never send anybody to hell. Though God has said through his son that that is exactly what he will do and is required to do by his holiness. Certainly the demons who hate God, who hate his children, are incapable of the third element of faith, trust. Demons will not trust God. But they have the first two. They're locked up. The demons are locked up in their determination to oppose God and will not come close to making the proclamation that Thomas made, my Lord and my God. Right? Demons have faith. Demons have faith, but it's a dead faith because it does not lead to trust and never will. Now, are there examples of men and women in Scripture who share this sort of demon faith, simply knowledge and assent without trust? Classic example of this sort of faith are the Pharisees. Right? They had deep, deep knowledge of God. These were the experts on Scripture. They had a deep knowledge of God. They knew the law in great detail. In fact, at one point in the Gospels, in Matthew 23, Jesus tells the crowds this about the Pharisees and scribes. He says, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But don't do according to their deeds. What they tell you from the law of Moses, yeah, do that, but don't do as they're acting, right? For they say things and do not do them. So in one sense, they assented to God's word, yet in another sense, they did not. Perhaps they had a lower assent than that even of the demons. The following passage speaks to their unwillingness to believe God. John 8, this is about the Pharisees, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. And have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. 
I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you will seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have, I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were born, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convinces me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. These are the Pharisees. These are the men that were respected for their devotion to God. And, and Jesus just took them to task. But in the end, what don't they do? They do not trust in Jesus Christ. Rather, they trust in what? They trust in their own righteousness. They trust in their ability to tithe. They trust in all their works. They had a demon's faith, but not true faith. The Pharisees had superior knowledge of God, but no real faith. They, they neither fully ascended to God's word nor clearly put their trust in Jesus Christ, declaring him Lord. So the Pharisees are one huge example of dead faith, of demon faith. And then there is a striking passage in Matthew chapter 7. It goes beyond the world of the Pharisees and hits very much closer to home to us. The passage relates very closely to the one we are reading in James where he is speaking to the fact that faith is fruitful, that faith is productive, faith produces fruit, and faith without fruit is dead. Matthew seven fifteen says this, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. So it's a very simple concept here. Good tree equals good fruit. Good faith equals holiness. Bad tree equals bad fruit. False faith equals unholiness. You don't obey. Then the topic shifts. There will be those who do seemingly great works, great things, but don't have faith. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So in other words, what I think this passage is saying or what this passage means is this, there will be some who prophesy, there will be some who cast out demons, There were some who perform miracles who do so not by faith, but simply for a lust for power. Passage says that the one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What those who prophesied and exercised and miraclized did was catered to their own will. They did works out of faith in themselves rather than in faith toward God. The works God desires are simple. The works God desires are simple acts of obedience. Prophesying, casting out demons, performing miracles, those aren't required, but what is? Not lying. Not committing adultery, honoring your father and mother, caring for orphans and widows, keeping oneself unstained by the world, respecting your husband, obeying those in authority over you, and and on and on. You get the picture, just everyday acts of obedience. Faith produces this kind of obedience to God, real obedience. Faith says, God is my Lord, and I long to do what he asks me to do. It is loving what he commands, loving him by loving his commands. Faith is not simply believing that God is and then going about your way. Well, God is. Who cares that he wrote a book? Who cares that he has all power? Who cares that he created the universe? I think I'll watch TV. Faith says God is my Lord and I must do as he has commanded and I love to do as he commanded. Faith is not simply believing that God is. It is not even acknowledging that what he says is true. It is believing that God is acknowledging that what he says is true and loving him by loving to do his will. And so the passage goes on in Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine And acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. Great was its fall. And so, dear brothers and sisters, does your, does your faith surpass that of the demons? The demons tremble at God. The demons tremble at the commands of God. Some of us, we don't tremble at it. Some of us think there's a God, and we're pretty content with that, and And we have our religion on our own terms and we think about God occasionally. Sometimes we're forced to if we we, um, bump into a real Christian. But, dear brothers and sisters, your faith must assent and your faith must trust. 
right? Don't stop at just knowing about God. Pursue him as a person. Pursue him as the one who created you in your mother's womb. Pursue him as somebody who knows you so intimately you can't imagine how intimately he knows you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Right? He knows when you rise up and when you go to sleep. He knows you. And just be, being in awe of that power should be enough for us to assent to that truth. But beyond that, God the Father sent his son to die for your sins. And there should be so much, that, so much joy that that brings into our minds and occupies in our minds. The fact that God Almighty would serve his, his children that he made out of the dust. And so love that God. Love that God. Don't stuff your mind full of facts about God and, and, and hate him for what he does to inhibit you. No. Love what he says in his word. Love his standard. Love him because he's a glorious and godly and good father in heaven. Love him as he superintends over every one of the hairs of your head. Let's pray.